I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Matthew Vincent. This week, we'll be discussing the UK's financial services relationship with the EU post-Brexit. Credit Suisse ousting Chief Executive Tijan Tiam amid a spying scandal, HSBC frustrating investors over its future leadership, and Challenger Bank Starling raising funds for faster European expansion. Joining me in the studio to discuss all of this are David Crow, Stephen Morris and Nick McGaw from the FT, and our special guest down the line this week is Anne Bowden, Chief Executive of Starling Bank. So let's start then with the UK's future financial services relationship with the EU after Brexit. A long lens camera and some sharp-eyed reporters have discovered that the UK's opening position in its future financial services trading relationship is going to be one of permanent equivalence. David, you have written the story about this. Can you explain what permanent equivalence means and how it differs from what the EU's interpretation of an equivalence regime would be. Okay, so this is the UK's opening gambit, if you like, and it's best summed up, I suppose, as a moon on a stick. They want everything. What they want is a relationship that they describe as permanent equivalence. That is, they would be able to access the European Union's markets for financial services by having rules that had equivalent outcomes. This is an important point of distinction, i.e. the rules might differ in how we've written them, but the fundamental outcome of the financial services that are sold into the market will be the same. Same kind of regulatory scrutiny and so on, tough rules and whatever. Now, the permanent piece is important because at the moment, equivalence is best thought of as a gift, if you like. The EU can give you equivalence, but it can also take it away. And in some instances, it can do that in as little as 30 days. Now, if you're a big global bank like JP Morgan or UBS that has a a large hub in London, 30 days is nothing. Indeed, I spoke to people when I was reporting this article that said a year wasn't even enough. And so Sajid Javid, the Chancellor, in this briefing note that we saw once a sustainable permanent equivalence set up, and then in a subsequent op-ed he wrote for a rival newspaper, he described this as lasting for decades to come. Now, this is not going to fly, obviously, in Brussels. 30 days is the EU position. Permanence is the Chancellor's. These are opening gambits, are they not? And presumably we're going to hope to end up somewhere in the middle. Where might we land? So interestingly, this briefing paper that was snapped by the long-lensed photographer kind of admitted this. So this is the opening position. And then it talks about two landing zones, one of which we understand the Treasury wants to end up in, which is where there is no kind of legal 
underpinning for this in the free trade agreement anyway, but there are a series of memorandums of understanding and agreements for cooperation that once you cobble them together, in effect, provide something approaching this permanent equivalence. Another wrinkle is that the UK appears to want equivalence in some areas, but not others. And this comes back to this oft-repeated claim of wanting to cherry-pick. So while global banks, most of which do want to hew very closely to the rules already in place in the European Union will continue to do so, perhaps. Hedge funds, insurers that complain about some of the more arduous aspects of EU regulation might want to opt out. But the EU has indicated pretty clearly, hasn't it, that any kind of bespoke arrangement for the UK is just not acceptable. Have they reacted to this permanent equivalent suggestion yet? Yes, Mr Barnier, the chief negotiator for the European Union, very quickly this morning dismissing any idea of permanent equivalence and pretty much saying it's our way or the highway. You know, we give it to you and we can take it away. Now, the thing that's worrying people is that the EU has been known to use equivalence as a stick with which to beat its trading partners in the past for entirely unrelated areas. So the Swiss have been arguing with Europe for a long time over immigration and trade and all sorts of other things. And when these negotiations got to a very tricky place, the EU effectively yanked an equivalence agreement covering stock trading. So this is the big fear that the financial services industry in the city of London will become a kind of political football for, to use the Chancellor's language, decades to come, unless something of a more permanent nature is put in place. Unless we can hit one of those landing zones and reach some sort of compromise. We will be following this story, I suspect, for days, weeks, months to come. But for now, David, thank you very much. So let's now turn to the drama at Credit Suisse. Last Friday, after a 20-hour board meeting and what one attendee described as a sad last supper of takeaway pizza the Swiss bank announced that Tijan Tiem would depart as chief executive after five years. Chairman Urs Runner said that directors had no option but to remove Mr Tiem after the revelation of a second spying operation on a former employee. Mr Tiem, the first black chief executive of a major European bank, has always denied knowledge of any surveillance operations and had received a fair amount of vocal support from some UK and US shareholders. But it was Mr Rona who won the power struggle as Credit Suisse directors agreed that the CEO, whose tenure had once featured a bizarre tree-planting spat with a rival executive, was the one who had to leave. Stephen, you followed this story. How much of a shock was it that it turned out the way it did? Well, when we were speaking to a lot of the people involved, they said usually in these circumstances when the CEO goes up against the chairman, the CEO loses. Purely from a corporate government's perspective, it would be very hard to find another chairman when the CEO has quite clearly been given more power than the board and ultimately the person who is his boss. I think over time, there were probably lots of opportunities for the people that are running the bank, the board and the executive team to come together and put this behind. But mistakes were made on both sides. I think the important thing to remember about this scandal is no one comes out of it looking particularly good. The CEO was essentially forced out and stepped down. But the chairman, who wanted to extend his tenure beyond 2021, has been forced to put in writing 
I will leave next year and I'm not seeking an extension anymore. So it's kind of a bit of mutually assured destruction on both sides, but an absolutely fascinating and very colourful saga to report on since Spygate, as it's become known in Zurich, broke last September. Some say that Mr TM was always something of an outsider within Mm. the bank. The cultural differences were difficult to overcome. What did you hear about that? Well, some of the bank's largest investors, including the largest, a guy called David Harrow from Harris Associates, came out and said he thinks the CEO has been a victim of racism in the country. There has always been this idea that Tijan Tian was an outsider. He was born in the Ivory Coast, but grew up and was educated in France. But he was not part of the Swiss establishment. And certainly some of the coverage going after his behaviour in Spygate was quite virulent on behalf of the Swiss newspapers. And those who supported the executive, including some of the largest investors, were quick to point this out over the last week. So that's an ugly facet of it simmering beneath the surface. But what is true is that Tijan Tiam never really pandered to the Swiss establishment. He didn't go to the right restaurants or attend the right events and cultivate relationships with the right people. He saw himself very much as an international turnaround executive who didn't necessarily need to pay lip service to all the right institutions. And had that rather odd spat with one of his very, very senior lieutenants. Exactly. Well, the rising star of Credit Suisse for a number of years was Iqbal Khan, who's now head of international wealth management at Crosstown. Well, actually, not even Crosstown, Cross Square rival. UBS and Credit Suisse literally face off on the main square in Zurich. After buying the house next to his boss, knocking it down noisily over two years and rebuilding it very slightly larger, which then resulted in Tijan Tian planting some trees to block his subordinate Iqbal Khan's view of Lake Zurich. All very relatable stuff, even if most neighbourhood disputes are on a much smaller scale. But again, neither of the two men involved in that spat came out particularly well. They both damaged themselves and looked very petty. So it's been an eventful final year for Tijan Tiam. He started in July 2015 and deserves some credit for solving some of the problems and turning around the at least the profit side of the bank's balance sheet. But I think when we look back on this, it won't go down as one of the greatest tenures in European banking. No, David, if I can bring you in here, all of these controversies aside, how do you think Mr TM's tenure will be regarded and what are the jobs left to do for his successor, Thomas Gottstein? Well, I think that the best way of summing up his achievements are there have been green shoots recently. I mean, it has been a long slog. I think the shares are still down about by half from when he took over. And there are still problems. I mean, there was a big sea change in the investment bank recently where the old leaders were swept aside and new ones put in place. And of course, the standout performer has been wealth management. And the person in charge of that, Iqbal Khan, as we know, is the defector at the heart of all of this. And I think it's true to say that nobody comes out of this well or there are no winners. I think with the chief exception of Iqbal Khan, who went into a fight to the death, if you like, against Tijan Tiam and has emerged as the victor. He's sitting pretty over at UBS now and is seen by many as the sort of main internal successor to the CEO there, Sergio Amotti. So that turned out to be quite a good move. Just finally, Stephen, a new CEO comes in, has to try to stabilise the situation after this spying scandal. What do you think the most important things are for Thomas Gottstein to do? Thomas has to come in and first he has to basically repair the bank's image 
you know, a lot of the employees are very upset with the allegations that people associated with Tijan TM hired spies to follow around a number of employees. So I think it's rebuilding that trust between executives and the rank and file. And he has a lot of work to do to sort out the investment bank, as David mentioned, which had an absolutely horrendous year, even compared with peers like Deutsche Bank, which is difficult. And also Asia is very up and down. Some quarters it reports a healthy profit, others a big loss. There just doesn't seem to be any consistency in terms of strategy. So I think Thomas has to get over there. Interestingly, Mr. Gottstein sided with Tijan Tiam in the Iqbal Khan dispute, but quite clearly didn't in dispute against the chairman. So he will be carrying on a lot from what his former boss did. And it remains to be seen whether he is the long-term successor or whether he's just a stopgap before somebody else is brought in. Yes, I certainly need to turn things around sooner rather than later. Stephen, thank you very much indeed. Now, HSBC is trying to manage a rather more orderly transition to its next chief executive after Chairman Mark Tucker decided that his first choice, John Flint, was not right for the job. So he made Noel Quinn the bank's interim boss six months ago and gave him the power to begin a restructuring with a full strategic overhaul to be unveiled next week. But shareholders who were hoping that Mr Quinn might be named the permanent CEO at the same time look set to be disappointed. HSBC has decided that it will not name a permanent boss just yet, which has left some investors and analysts worried that Mr Quinn, as the main author of the new plan, might not actually be the person to implement it. David, this is all a little bit weird, isn't it? Unveiling the strategy next week is what we're expecting, but not the person who's going to put it in place, or not the permanent person. Yes, as one analyst described it, it's like going into war without knowing who the general is going to be. I think, you know, you rightly point out that Mark Tucker admits and I think bitterly regrets making a mistake last time round and wants to make sure he gets it right this time. I think that his efforts, if you like, have been complicated a bit by the kind of interim chief executive that Noel Quinn has been. He was told that he was auditioning for the job on a daily basis, and he has taken to that task with great gusto. Indeed, in six months as an interim CEO, he's arguably done more than the previous permanent CEO did in 18 months. He's swept aside some of the main executives at the bank. He has started work on what we understand is going to be one of the most dramatic restructurings in HSBC's history with more than 10,000 job losses. So given that Mr. Quinn has dispatched himself in this way, in effect been acting as if he is a permanent CEO with a mandate for change, most investors were betting that he would be named as the permanent CEO. Now, that's not going to happen. Um, It's still within Mark Tucker's self-assigned deadline of finding a new CEO within six to 12 months. So in theory, he has another six months to go. But it has created a vacuum and there is nothing that HSBC investors have bore more than a vacuum because the bank is going through some very turbulent times. There's the coronavirus in China. It's the biggest international bank in China. There's the unrest in Hong Kong. There's the effect of Brexit on banks in the UK. 
and it is undergoing this major surgery in the form of a massive restructuring and nobody knows who the leader is and that is causing some consternation among the bank's investors. Understandably. So what or who is Chairman Mark Tucker waiting for? Well, one of the uh, very interesting things about this process has been how tightly managed it is. Normally, people like me and my rivals at other newspapers are very good at finagling out the names of people that HSBC or the bank in question has been trying to approach to see if they're interested in a job. Now, in this instance, that hasn't happened. And again, that's one of the reasons people have assumed that it's for the internal candidate. Now, we understand that there was a board meeting in Dubai last month where some directors are least went into that meeting in the expectation that the CEO question would be answered and it wasn't and normally when that happens one imagines that there's some kind of disagreement around the boardroom table. But it can't go on much longer for the reasons that you've outlined. We're going to get this big strategy overhaul next week. When will we get clarity? It can't go another six months surely. Well, here's an interesting exercise in crystal ball gazing. If they decide to go for an external person who is already in a job in banking or some other area of financial services, they are probably going to have six months of gardening leave. So then you take the six months of interim leadership, add them to the six months of gardening leave, and to be fair, give them six months or so to get their feet under the table, decide whether they agree with the plan and so on. Then you've gone 18 months without proper leadership, and you add it to the 18 months of the predecessor, John Flint, who people say did not provide proper leadership. And that is a long time for a bank to go rudderless. You can certainly understand why shareholders might be feeling a little bit fed up, say nothing of what Noel Quinn might be feeling. Anyway, thank you, David, very much. We will keep following the HSBC succession story, of course. And finally today, the challenge of expansion for challenger banks. While fintech favourites Monzo and Revolut have been trying to finalise their latest fundraisings, Starling, the British digital challenger bank, has just got on with it. It has raised £60 million in an investment round led by City Asset Manager Merion Global Investors to help it launch in Ireland. And I'm pleased to say that Chief Executive Anne Bowden joins us down the line to tell us all about it. And what are you going to use the money that you've raised for? Well, Starling's on a journey of getting ready for its European launch. We hope to be profitable by the end of the year. So some of this money will cover our losses until then, and some will actually help us prepare for our European expansion. And why is it that you've picked Europe over the US? Well, I think Europe has yet to benefit from the fintech revolution. There's a lot going on in the States, and competing in the US market is tough. The banking industry is very different over there. So we believe that the next stop for Starling is Ireland, where we are working very hard with the Irish regulator to get a banking license, and then we'll use that headquarters for our European operation in Dublin to expand across Europe. And what sort of time frame are you putting on your move into Europe? Obviously, Ireland is stage one, and you talk about the process to get the license. What are you looking to do after that? 
We're very pragmatic. We know very well that whilst the regulatory environment is consistent in most places across Europe, the culture in each country is very different. And we have to take this one step at a time. We have to really understand what the consumers and small businesses require in the country. And once we've figured that out, we'll move on to the next country. So we are being very pragmatic and very deliberate in planning our expansion across Europe. And investors seem to like what they're hearing. You're not the only challenger bank to be raising money right now. How has this latest fundraising round gone? Very well. I think that we are seen by the market as being a bank that actually plans for profitability. It's not all about growth. It's about growing in a very sustainable way. And our investors see that and are backing us. I can't not ask you about Brexit. Does it make it harder for challenger banks to grow? The fact that we're now into this period of negotiation about our future financial services relationship with the bloc, does it make it harder or does it just mean it takes longer? Well, a couple of years ago, our plan was to passport from the UK across Europe. That is now not possible. So our plan is to get a banking license in Ireland and use that as our European base, where we'll passport from Dublin to various European locations. So once we've taken that decision, we have clarity and we can start planning. For us, Brexit is behind us. We're now looking towards a future where we have a Dublin operation. So no delay at all, really? I think it's been very, very hard up until now to read what's going to happen. But I think at the moment we feel very confident. Very good. Nick, if I can just bring you in. You've been following the challenger bank sector for some time now. Starling is one of a number of challengers raising funds. What are they all seeking to do? Similar things or are they going in different directions? Yes, quite similar at a high level at least. So as Anne's just talked about in Starling's case, this is raising money because they're loss making. So they need extra cash to fund the international expansions. That's broadly what everyone else is also trying to do. Revolut, probably going to be the next one to announce a fundraising, but you've also got Monzo reportedly looking at things. Moneys as well, who specialise in slightly different audience, but similar product, but taking slightly different approaches in where they choose to focus. So it's interesting, I think, that Starling is focusing on Europe. Ireland especially is more similar to the UK than, say, the US is, in that it's very concentrated in a few large banks, whereas the US has got 4,500 banks that you're competing with. It's obviously a much bigger population, but spread over a much bigger area. And so it'll be interesting to see how the other guys who are trying to break into there find things. And in terms of the other challenges, they presumably also not having difficulty in raising the money. Yeah, I think at the moment, at least, there's still quite a lot of investor interest. The Revolut fundraising has taken longer than they said it would, but I think that's as much due to startups tending to over-optimism rather than any particular struggle to get investors on side. The interesting question will be how patient investors are going forward if it comes to needing to raise more cash in a year's time or in another 18 months' time or and then again in two years' time. Starling's the first to put an explicit target on when they'll be profitable. Even if it's a way off, at least they've said it's coming. At some point, everyone else is going to have to start making similar signals. Yes, Starling is definitely a clear pathway to profitability, but we'll obviously keep observing as it heads in that direction. Nick, thank you very much indeed. And that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Nick Gore, to Stephen Morris, David Crow, and our guest, Anne Bowden, Chief Executive of Starling Bank. And my thanks to all of you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at www.ft.com.
bp.com forward slash banks. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.